Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. The Abortion Counseling Service of Women's Liberation, codenamed Jane, performed an estimated 11,000 low-cost abortions in Chicago in the years immediately preceding the 1973 Roe v. Wade decision. Jane began in 1969 as a counseling service that connected pregnant people with doctors willing to terminate their pregnancies. But soon enough, its members started assisting with the procedures, and by the fall of 1971, were themselves providing as many as 90 abortions a week in addition to basic gynecological care. None of the Jane volunteers, all of them women, were doctors. They simply believed that women should take reproductive care into their own hands, as they had done for centuries prior to the advent of bans on abortion. In The Story of Jane, published in a new paperback edition this month, activist Laura Kaplan tells the story of the legendary service of which she herself was a member. Laura Kaplan is a founding member of the Emma Goldman Women's Health Center in Chicago and has been involved in care work across the country. Thanks for talking to me, Laura. Thanks for having me. So it is pretty devastating to be talking to you after the repeal of Roe v. Wade and the de facto banning of abortion in more than half of American states. Um, How does it feel for you to be talking about this after Roe? Well, you know, when I wrote the book back in the mid-90s, the book came out in January of 96, I didn't expect that it would serve a different function than it's serving now. Um, I really saw it as an important story from the early days of the women's liberation movement and a story that was little known at the time. Um, certainly now it takes on a different hue and a different flavor as people all over the country are looking for ways that they can help women do what they feel they need to do. Yeah, I've read a couple articles about new underground groups that have organized recently to, well, first provide abortion pills to people in Texas and now, of course, more states. What kind of lessons do you think Jane has to offer those people? Well, I think the major lesson is that if something needs to be done, you can organize with others to do it. Can't do it alone. Uh, as one of uh, the Jane members said to me when I interviewed her, trying to do anything alone is like trying to start a fire with wet wood. I think the message from Jane, and it's been true for groups around the world, not only here, is that you can really accomplish extraordinary things working together. So how did you first get involved with Jane back in the 1970s and find your way into it? So in the fall of 1971, I moved back to Chicago. I had gone to college in Chicago when I moved back. And my dear friend Alice um, discovered that she was pregnant and didn't want to be. And so she looked around and she saw an ad in an underground newspaper that said, pregnant, don't want to be, call Jane with a phone number. And so she did. And she got her abortion, and afterwards she came over to my apartment, and she was so excited by this experience. Not only that she was no longer pregnant, um, but that she felt the experience was so transformational in a way. 
that it was really about educating her. I mean, you have to keep in mind, we all have to keep in mind, that back in those days, um, there wasn't the information that there is today. You know, you can go into any bookstore and there's shelves of books on women's health. There was nothing. Um, and so she was taken with the experience on a very deep level and was practically bouncing off the walls of my apartment. And I thought, well, this is pretty cool. I had not, I'd wanted to get involved in the women's movement. I hadn't been thinking about abortion because I had lived in New York. And as you probably know, New York legalized abortion in the summer of 1970. So it wasn't like a top issue in my head when I moved back to Chicago. But because of her experience, I was pretty excited. And so she took me to meet her counselor, who lived a few blocks away, who told us that they were the group was starting a new counselor training session. And so I signed up. And the rest is, I guess, my history. Bouncing off the walls with excitement is not the reaction I would expect someone to have after having an abortion, let alone an illegal one. And not only illegal, but this was done by the guy. So she was blindfolded. So she was blindfolded having an illegal abortion in circumstances she really didn't know that much about. And yet it was such an exhilarating experience. She really felt that she was the center of the experience, that it was really focused on her and her needs. Yeah. I mean, she wasn't the only one. There was one woman in the book who said, who she went on to join the service and she said, I've just had an illegal abortion and it was the best medical experience I've ever had. And she's a nurse. That's that's wild to me. <laughs> and it's still the best medical experience she ever had. So you know that something very special was happening in that experience. So what made Jane's approach so different, um, not just from like other abortions at the time, but just other medical procedures? What what was so unique about it that everyone was responding in this way? I think a lot of us had a critique of the medical establishment and how medical care was delivered um, that was disempowering and often not so pleasant. And so what, because we had no medical model, because we weren't medical professionals, we weren't trained in a medical model, we were free to create our practice based on what worked for women and the way we wanted to be treated. And so we really made the woman the center of the experience. Give you an example. We didn't use drapes. We didn't separate off a piece of her body. You know, we were very clear, we're doing this with you, not to you. And we would say that to women. Um, that was a participatory experience. So we just kept referring back to what we knew worked to help women relax, because this was not a situation in which <laughs> you would think you would be very relaxed in a legal abortion, in a strange part of the city, in an apartment, on a bed. And maybe you were blindfolded, you know, so we had to do everything we could. And I have to say that the guy we worked with was very charming and was very good at helping women relax. And so we learned some from him on how to do that. But everything we did was such a revelation for us 
we wanted to share that revelatory experience with the women who came to us as a way of encouraging them, each of them, to see herself as the center, as an actor, and not someone stuff happened to. Can you walk me through, you know, it's 1970, I called Jane. What happens after that call? Okay. So a woman would call 643-3844, which was our number, and she would get a recording that said, this is Jane from Women's Liberation. If you need help or need assistance, I don't remember the exact words now, uh, leave your name and phone number and I'll call you back. And then we had uh, several people in the group at a time who were callback Janes, very creative names, who called the women back. And when I was called back, Jane, I would call back and I would say, this is Jane, you called, how can I help you? So we always wanted the woman to say what she was calling us for and what she needed. And then we would get some basic information from her, her name, her dress, her phone number, previous pregnancies, previous miscarriages, how many children she had, how old she was, when would her last period was, and how much money she could afford. That would get given to another position within the group, which was called Big Jane. Big Jane would put that information on three by five cards. And at our meetings that I remember being once every 10 days, we weren't really very meeting oriented. <laughs> we didn't like meetings. Um, those, that stack of cards would get passed around. And the women who were in Jane, now let me back up a second. So when I went through the training, the training was to counsel women. And there were three training sessions. Um, and at the end of those training sessions, then you sat in with an experienced counselor. And then the experienced counselor sat in with you. And then you were on your own. We saw counseling as really the bedrock of the group, and everybody counseled. But that's how you entered the group as well. So at our meetings, the stack of three-by-five cards would get passed around, and individual members, counselors, would pick the women they wanted to counsel. And then there'd always be the difficult cases, you know, the 16-year-old who was... 13 weeks pregnant and her parents didn't know and she had no money, you know, that kind of, and so it would be up to big Jane to then start calling people up after the meeting and begging them. Oh, this one is easy. Won't be a problem. You could take her. Um, so we as counselors selected people who maybe lived near us or were around our age or whatever criteria we used <laughs> to decide who to pick. So, then the counselor would call the woman and say, hi, this is, in my case, Laura. Jane gave me your phone number, and I want to set up a time that you could come over to my apartment, and I can explain everything to you then. So the women would come to our apartments, and we'd make pots of tea and maybe cookies. And uh, starting in early 1971, because in late 1970, 
The First Our Bodies Ourselves, which was called Women in Their Bodies, was published. It was this thick, you know, it was 35 cents, printed on newsprint, and we just got thousands of copies. So we had those for women. We had the birth control handbook out of Montreal, which was free, also on newsprint. So we had all this educational material. So we would walk them through uh, what the abortion was, what would happen, where they would go, who they would see, what it would feel like, what they should watch out for afterwards, and tell them that we would keep in touch with them for like two weeks afterwards to make sure they were okay. We really felt that what terrifies you is really not knowing. So that's why we wanted to give all the information about what you would see or what you would do. And then Big Jane scheduled work days and counselors would call the women they counseled and tell them where the front was. So the front, again, with the creative names, was a front. It was one of our apartments or one of our friends' apartments or an apartment we could borrow for the day where that was like a staging area, gathering ground. We had lots of food there, and women were encouraged to bring someone with them. And they were encouraged to bring someone to the counseling session with them, too, so they wouldn't feel so all alone. So women brought their boyfriends, their husbands, their sisters, their kids, their, you know, so the front was kind of a scene. You know, the guys would be watching sports on TV or playing cards and the women would be nervous. And then during the course of the day, another woman in the group, the driver, would uh, take five women at a time or however many she could fit in the car we were using. And again, it might be a borrowed car that you never driven before. It could be one of our cars. And she would drive them to the place. And the place was another apartment uh, belonging to one of us or one of our friends, usually a two-bedroom apartment, and we would do the abortions. So the women, you know, the five women would gather in the living room, and then uh, when it was their turn, they would go into one of the bedrooms. And that's where the abortions, and we did DNC abortions, were performed. And during the abortions, um, there were two women in the room. This is in our later days when it was all girls. Um, so one woman would sit with her and hold her hand while the other woman did the beginning stages of the abortion. And then usually because that person was in training at the point that she got to where she did what she could do, knew how to do, was trained to do, then the two people would switch positions so that the woman that had been sitting with her was then the woman who put on the headlamp and picked up the instruments and did the full abortion. Um, and I think that's really important because it was a way, it was our attempt to equalize power. You know, in a regular medical setting, you see the nurse and she sets you up and, and then the doctor comes in, you know, and it's uh, a different thing. Not so with us. Um, and we would talk to her about whatever she wanted to talk about. So we would talk about her kids or school or, 
you know, if she wanted to know everything that was going on, we would do a play-by-play description of what we were doing in the abortion. You know, she was told she could squeeze my hand as hard as she could if she wanted to. The only thing she couldn't do was scream because we were working in apartments. And then when the abortion was over, um, she would get dressed and go back into the living room and wait till there were a number of women who were ready to be driven back to the front. And then the driver would do that and then bring another group of women back to the place. So that was our day. And then at the end of the day, counselors would call the women they counseled who were scheduled that day to find out if they, how much they were bleeding, what their temperature was, just to make sure there were no problems. And we kept in touch as best we could. There were some women we could never get in touch with again. They were done. They didn't want to talk to us. So that's what would happen. We did a lot of counseling around birth control. And, you know, I remember pieces of my rap on that, which was, you know, all the methods suck, but you have to use something because we don't want to see you again. (laughs) That's not what this is for. You wouldn't see them again until some of them joined the service themselves. It seemed not all that uncommon Was it always that kind of politicizing experience or, you know, did some women just sort of come through the service and have, I guess, the environment sort of bounce off of them? I'm sure. I mean, who knows exactly how many women. I'm sure there were lots of women who were like, yeah, 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 just give me the abortion and let me get out of here and get on with my life. Um, We did what we could do. I mean, you, you can't make people do anything, (laughs) you know. Um, So, but you can set up the circumstances through which others can empower themselves um, and see this as a moment of growth and empowerment. And some women clearly did. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to think of, and you devoted a big section of the book to how Jane fits in with the rest of the women's liberation movement at the time, and also other radical organizations. Um, and it's funny because I think some of the debates that were happening then are, are still debates that are happening within organizing circles, these dichotomies of organizing versus service work, organizing versus mutual aid. You know, is it charity? Is it just something that's a Band-Aid? How did Jane wrestle with those questions? The group was organized by a very political person who I call Claire in the book, but her real name is Heather Booth, and now she's very out about her role. And she had been doing, referring women mostly to a doctor on the South Side, T.R. Howard, who she knew from the civil rights movement. She had been in Mississippi summer and had been and still is an incredible activist. Um, she had a political analysis of abortion that she wanted to imbue this group she was starting. She decided, you know, she was getting too many calls and it was too much work for her. And I think she also wanted to do other organizing work. So she wanted, but she wanted to pass this on to a committed group. And so she did, but she also wanted to imbue it with her political sense. So the politics were part of the inception. 
what we sort of bridled at was the dichotomy you just set up between organizing and direct service work. Because what we realized was that what we were doing was about as radical as you could get and had the most potential for raising consciousness and changing women's reality. And we didn't see that dichotomy. You know, there were others in the Women's Liberation Union who saw us as, you know, well, we were those sort of social worker do-gooders. But because of how we set up the challenge to standard medical practice through what we did, um, we could really blow people's minds. You know, I think it's interesting that by the end of its run, Jane's structure rebutted a lot of those critiques that were raised at the Chicago Women's Liberation Union. How are you changing the system if you're just referring women to underground male abortionists? How can you be radical if you're charging $500 per abortion, you know, basically excluding Chicago's poor and mostly black community? But then by its final form, the members of Jane were doing all the abortions, so it wasn't male abortionists, and the cost had gone down to $100 or whatever you could pay, basically. Can you talk about that evolution, the steps it took for Jane to get there? You know, the original members of the group very early on determined that it wasn't saying much if you said to women, well, we sent other people to this doctor before and they all came back alive. That that wasn't really a good uh, selling tool, shall we say. And so they determined very early on that to give women control over illegal abortion, the group had to take control. And so they looked for one of their practitioners who they could have more leverage with and slowly take more control. And they did. They found this guy, um, this doctor, who was willing to negotiate with them. You know, we'll guarantee so many a week, and then you'll do one for free. We were also raising money for the women who couldn't afford the full amount. So there was a lot of fundraising going on, and um, there were other people who were bringing bags of money to us so we could give it to poor women. So this guy, this supposed doctor, he was getting berated constantly by the very inner circle of this group around how much he was charging. He was clearly in it for the money. I mean, who, who else would negotiate with a bunch of women, you know? He had said to me, you know, the first time I agreed to do an abortion for free, I knew the jig was up. You know, this wasn't going to be a money-making thing. And certainly, once New York legalized abortion in the summer of 1970, for about $300, including airfare, you could fly to New York, get an abortion, and fly back the same day. So how could he charge more than that? So he was constantly being worked on and worked on. And I think he got to a point where he thought, I'm not going to do this for free, but I want this to go on. So I'm going to train these women to do it. Because he really, the woman I call Jenny in the book, whose real name is Jody, she's been dead for quite a long time now. Um, she told me she had no intention of touching the instruments. You know, and he said, here, try this and 
see what this feels like. And she was, no, no, no. And he really pushed her. But as soon as she picked up the instruments, it was a revelation that this was something she could actually learn to do. And by extension, then we as a group, others in the group could learn to do. Then we wouldn't need him anymore. And we could lower the price. When it was all women, we charged $100 of what you could afford. And we estimate that we got an average of 40 or $50 per abortion. But lots of women paid nothing or on on those three by five carts, it might say eight dollars because that's what she could pay, you know, and that didn't matter to us because we weren't clearly in it for the money. How did that change the volume of people that you were bringing in? Because it started out much smaller. You know, one person was overwhelmed over the course of years. You get up to, you know, 60 to 90 a week. Right. How did you deal with that internally? Um, and I guess, too, how did the kinds of women seeking out the service change? Um, well, the kinds of women changed radically. From the very beginning, we provided abortions to all kinds of women, all races, all ages, all economic status, everything. Once New York legalized, then all those middle-class college students who felt comfortable going to O'Hare Airport and getting on an airplane did so for the most part, except my friend Alice. She didn't. (laughs) And I still don't know why. I mean, I don't think she's really clear on it either why. But for the most part, middle class, upper class, and primarily white women were getting on planes and flying to New York. So who was left? Girls, young girls, women in circumstances where they couldn't even leave for a day. Maybe they were in controlling, in some cases, violent relationships, and poor women, and mostly women of color. So the service demographics, I guess, changed pretty radically at that point, and we became more and more a service for the most needy and the least able to access other options. Meanwhile, our phone number had spread around the city of Chicago, especially on the south side and the west side. And when I was doing Big Jane, we were getting sometimes 300 calls a week. And it was a little tricky trying to fit 300 people into 90 slots. You know, the math does not work. So people would have to wait and we would have to figure out if somebody was 12 weeks, they got bumped up on the queue because that's sort of a critical cutoff. But those women needed the same, all women needed the same things. They needed education. They needed support. They needed to feel in control and not hapless victims of circumstance. We really wanted to build that sense of you are making a decision about your life. You know, we don't do this to you, but with you. Uh, We never referred to people coming to Jane, but through Jane as a process and not as an event, I guess. I was even astonished to find that um, the male abortion provider, who turned out not to be a doctor, um, told you this about working with Jane. I would have sold my soul to the devil to have done it. I came out of this nothing childhood and then had this marvelous experience, and I ended up better for it. Yeah. 
Can you say more about how being in Jane changed your life and the lives of the women around you? <laughs> I was 24 when I joined Jane. We were mostly women, young women in our 20s. The youngest of us was 19. Um, there were a few women in their 40s, but the overwhelming majority of us were in our 20s. Maybe there were a few people who were 30. So we were young women who had had the experience of taking responsibility for strangers, for strangers' lives. And we would say to women, we counseled, you know, you're trusting me with your life and I'm trusting you with mine. We always, you know, we're working on ways to equalize power and to do this as a community and have a sense of community. But I, you know, completely changed my life. I mean, I didn't, <laughs> I don't think I knew how to balance a checkbook before I joined Jane and I wound up doing for a long period of time, some of the main administrative work of this group. Um, and so at a young age to be taking responsibility, it, it grows you up um, and turns you into the person you were meant to be. So Jane does ultimately get busted in 1972. But even with seven members arrested and then released on bail, Jane didn't stop providing abortions, which I think says a lot. <laughs> Can you talk about what happened um, in the bust and in the, you know, the final months of the group? How did Jane respond to finally, you know, facing the illegal part of illegal abortion? Well, you know, we created our own reality, a reality we wanted to live in. And it was separate from the real world, you know, the world out there. So whenever the greater world impinged, it was a shock, you know. So people freaked out and left the group, you know. The reality is here. We could get, we always knew we could get arrested, and then we did. Um, but I think the really critical story of the bust is that all of those women who were at the front that day and got taken down to the police station and the women who were waiting for abortions, who didn't at the place, who didn't get them because <laughs> the police broke in, we got them abortions. Nobody got hung out to dry. We just felt like we can't just say, well, you know, we got busted. We can't help you. And within a couple of weeks, we started working again at a very a uh, much smaller level and not so comfortable. We weren't doing fronts. You know, we, I remember picking up five women on a street corner and taking them to somebody's apartment and they'd get counseled right then and there. And then the abortion would be done. And it was later on in the summer when we found out through the lawyer that the bust was kind of a fluke. And if a certain lieutenant hadn't been on vacation, it would never have happened. And at that point, we thought, oh, they're not out to get us. So we went back to business as usual uh, within not that long after the bust. And we, you know, that's when we were having 300 women 
a week waiting uh, to get abortions. Of the seven people that were busted, uh, four of them came back to the group, which I think is incredible. You know, um, three chose not to, but four came back to work. And we kept going until the first clinics in Chicago in the spring of 73 opened. And then we were done. I mean, we were done in a lot of ways. I think we were, uh, we were pretty stressed out. You know, I want to say very clearly that when you choose to do something that violates conventions and norms, it takes a toll. You know, it's not without cost. So once the clinics opened, even though we knew they were going to get the same lousy medical care at those clinics that they always got from the medical, and we always got from the medical profession, uh, it was time for us to go. So what's stuck with you the most in the years since Jane closed down and in the years since you've been talking about this book? It's been like 20 years since it first came out. I want to say this, you know, we were not saints and we were not heroes. Um, and we weren't very nice to each other in the group. We were <laughs> really good with the women who called us, but with each other, there was a lot of backbiting and there were clicks and all of that garbage that goes on in any group. Um, that was true for us as well. But, um, and a lot of us didn't like other people in the group. I think by the end, there were people who weren't even talking to each other. Um, but if you see something that you need, that needs to be done, you can join with others. And they don't have to be your friends. They don't have to be people you really like. You may learn to really like them through working with them, but you can join with others and start with what you can do right now. You know, when we started, we knew nothing. We couldn't do anything. And then you keep what the need is you're addressing in front of you, in the forefront, and you follow that. And it can take you to places you never expected to go. We have links in the show notes to Laura Kaplan's incredible book, The Story of Jane, which is out in paperback with an unfortunately necessary revision about the recent Roe decision. This is not the first show I've done about abortion, and it probably won't be the last. And if you're hungry for more interviews about people trying to control women's bodies. There are lots of links in the show notes. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. <laughs>